Welcome to the Remarkable Relationship Show with Mercy Russell, where we find the wonder in your story. I will be your host for the next hour. I have over 35 years of experience applying the science of relationship systems to my practice of psychotherapy and leadership consulting. My intuitive skills allow me to bring clarity and vision to your challenges. I hope you will be surprised in the next hour. Good morning. This is Mercy Russell of the Remarkable Relationship Show. My goal is to bring a fresh perspective to you on all things related to how humans develop their individual brilliance while navigating the excitement, stickiness, and resistance in their relationships. In my 40 years of working as a psychotherapist and consultant, I have been continually amazed at the ways in which people overcome challenges. I hope to share my experience and insights so you can find the magic in your relationships. So good morning. Um, I'm here today with my guest, Emily Morrow. <clears throat> Emily is a dear friend who brings us her story of reinventing herself professionally and personally and culturally. <laughs> a highly successful estate attorney, Emily retired in 2005 uh, at the age four. 2004 at the age of 52. As she began a consulting practice, she and her physician husband decided to build a second home overseas. After a stint in Sydney, Australia, they moved to Auckland, New Zealand. We are going to talk about her experiences making this brave move, her talent for building community and her personal transformation. Welcome, Emily. Thank you, Mercy. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here with you. So let's start with some background of your life in Vermont where we met. What motivated, what motivated you to retire and your decision to seek a second home overseas? That's sort of sure. a big chapter. But let's give well, some background. Oh, audience. sure, sure. So I um, graduated from law school in the late 1970s. And uh, after a couple of interim moves, my husband and I moved to Vermont where he had um, grown up. We moved into the family home and we're settled there for um, almost 25 years. Mm. And I was a partner and a senior partner and, and managing partner at a large law firm there and built and managed a, a successful estate, trust and estates practice. And, and that was all good. And um, then uh, September 11th occurred uh, in, uh, in 2001. And I remember coming home and thinking to myself that the U.S. was going to go through a fundamental change as a result of this experience. Interestingly, my husband, who's a forensic pathologist, within a, a couple of hours of that event, he was mobilized to, to go down to New York City to help with victim identification. So I, I, was, uh, I was home in Vermont for about two weeks by myself while he was down in New York mm -hmm. working. And I had a lot of time to kind of think about the implications of this event. And um, to be honest, I didn't have any fears about terrorism in, you know, in, in Burlington, Vermont, but mm -hmm. I, I had some concerns about the, the US and its reaction to this event. And, um, and I had concerns uh, as I watched the, the aftermath of September 11th about 
the the sort of clear growth in um, what appeared to me to be xenophobia and also nationalism, both of which concerned me because those typically are trends that are not particularly helpful for for a country. So that was that was one factor that got me to begin to think about building a life in a in a, in a country other than the United States. Um, Another factor was that we had been to New Zealand. We loved the country. New Zealand is a, is a beautiful place. And um, so it, it was appealing to think about moving there. New Zealand, I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a small, benign, friendly country with culturally in some ways not, not too dissimilar to Vermont. So in any event, uh, I decided at, at that point, I, I decided that I was ready to quit the practice of law. My husband was, who was the chief medical examiner at the time, he decided that he was ready to leave that position. And we didn't retire, although you might say that our philosophy of life is retire early and often. So you could call this the, the first of many retirements, but I really thought of it more as the, the R word being reinvention of self rather than retirement. And so anyway, he was able to get a job first in Australia and, uh, and then in Auckland. And in 2005, August of 2005, we packed up, we each had two, two suitcases. We rolled them out of the house and we you know, trundled off to, uh, to Sydney. So that was the beginning of that that new life abroad. Yes, I, I um, when I think of your time in Sydney, one of the first things I think about, I, I just want to talk a little bit more about your background, your professional oh, sure. background, so people have a sense of, um, you know, just, uh, we're going to be talking about community, but you were very um, embedded in the Burlington, we were in Burlington, Vermont, yeah. And you were very embedded in that community. And <clears throat> I want, I'm going to ask you a little bit about it. But the anecdote I remember is you telling me really with some glee that you had gone <laughs> to a ladies' luncheon of the basically, I can't remember, some type of, you know, uh, expat international yeah. live. Yeah, in, in Sydney. Like, in Sydney. Right. Like yeah. this was such a, an unusual type of thing for you to be doing in the context of your career. So can you just tell little, uh, people a little bit about what the scope of your practice was and what the sure, kind sure. of community well, I, you had? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did trust and estate work and uh, my clientele were, you know, to be honest, kind of the rich and famous in Vermont because mm -hmm. they were the ones who needed estate planning. And I was on and chaired many boards, including the, the board of the largest commercial bank in New Zealand, I mean, in uh, Vermont. And historically, my, my work and my community involvement had been in the context of doing things that women typically don't do, like mm -hmm. back then, like chairing bank boards and um, you know, being in leadership roles of a variety of types. So anyway, when we went to, <laughs> we went to Sydney, I didn't know a soul. So I didn't know a soul. And so I was open to any and all offers. And I was introduced to this women, this uh, organization called the Sydney Women's International Club. And the vast majority of the, of the members were the wives of um, successful uh, executives who had, had lived overseas and, mm -hmm. and uh, they were the classic, uh, you know, bonbon eaters and ladies who lunch. Mm -hmm. And I, I had never spent time in my life 
women like this. <laughs> so it was kind of a cross-cultural experience. And, uh -huh. and they didn't quite know what to, what to make about with me because my professional background was I, I'd actually had a career. They had, they had often gone to university, but you know they'd never had a career. They, their, their primary talents were raising children and cooking great meals. And neither of those are my great talents. So. <laughs> yeah. um, um, you are really, though, a, a very graceful and skilled entertainer. So oh, well, uh, you're kind. Is, <laughs> So, um, but then from there, you really platformed because this thing of this is community building, and I had yeah. just been watching you carefully. But you really platformed mm. that kind of easy entry. Maybe it was you know interesting and unusual for you, but you then um, began to make connections with yeah. the husbands when you had sort of you know yeah. Yeah. mixed events, and yeah. that um, and then that that took you in a direction for your sort of the second, your second career. Well, and what, what had happened was I had been interested and had applied to and gotten accepted into a master's degree program at the University of Sydney in executive coaching. And I was all set to embark on that training. And then actually the husband of, of um, one of these women, I had lunch with him and I was talking with him and he, he gave me an introduction to a woman who ran um, a consultancy, a national consultancy company in, in Australia. And I had lunch with her. And so she asked me about my background. I filled her in about that. So she looked at me and she said, I, why, why in God's name are you going into this master's program? You already have a doctorate. Why do you need this master's? I'll hire you to do consultancy work with lawyers and law firms who are our clients here in, in Australia, and we'll put you to work right away. I said, oh, okay. She said, if you don't like it, well, then go back and do the master's program. So I, I ditched the master's program and went to, to work with her firm, all of which worked well. And that got me started on this second career of doing consulting work for lawyers and law firms, which is something that I've continued to do here in, in New Zealand. Right. So, and in, you were working with a firm and they had a way of, they had a, what would you say? Um, they had, they, they had, had an IP. They had, they had their IP. That's how they worked with people. IP. Intellectual property. Intellectual property. Right. right. So they had their, you know, their modus operandi of how they, yeah, they had a, pro, they had a protocol for how they yeah. worked with clients. Yeah. And they, and part of that involved, uh, pitching an offer sort of sales right? mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. was that something you'd had to do much before oh yes I mean I I built a law practice from scratch right so I've always been very entrepreneurial about mm -hmm. uh, building a professional practice it's something that I enjoy doing and so this was the same the same I used the same approach albeit in a different sector being the consulting sector rather than um, in the practice of law. But yeah, same relationship building, networking, um, getting, uh, building profile, professional profile within a, a cohort of prospective clients and referrers. Mm -hmm. So you, would, you were involved not only in working with clients that they brought in, but part of your job was also to bring in clients. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that, yeah, all of and which it, was fine. Right. Which was always, which was kind of um, 
what would you say, uh, a basic skill of yours yes. that you had, you know, cultivated and developing in practice. I mean, I, I love that business development component mm -hmm. of a professional practice. To me, that's in some ways the most fun. Uh huh. Yeah. Interesting, because yeah, if it, you know, it's um, yeah, it varies a lot for different professionals. Uh -huh. You know, in terms of my professional, I might think of my father's medical career. You know, he was always just very reliant on his competence, right? Yes. And yeah. yeah, so it was not about him. Uh, I mean, obviously there was natural networking that took place in a small town. Mm -hmm. He was in a relatively small town. Mm -hmm. And, um, but it, to him, it was not something you ever thought about doing or did purposely. Like he just relied, it was very much um, sort of merit-based. You know, yeah. you, you, you meet me, you see what you see what I do. And I, I don't think the word marketing ever crossed or networking ever crossed his mind. So all to say, you you know, that is a particular uh, uh, approach of yours. And do you find that many lawyers have that? Well, it's, it's a good question, Mercy. I would say the vast majority don't. Mm -hmm. And part of that is just the temperament profile of the typical person who goes into the law. They often are, can be relatively introverted. They're interested in the law rather than relationship building. So one of the things that I do a lot of work in now with lawyers uh, in terms of the consulting work I do is working with people on developing uh, business development capabilities, mm -hmm. because increasingly law firms are putting pressure on mm -hmm. their people before they'll make them partners to demonstrate that they can build a, a partner level practice and right. meet the, the financial goals the firm has for them. And bring in clients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Bring so in that fresh meat. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I won't stoop so low as to credit your extroversion for that. Because <laughs> I really do think it's a skill. But I do, I do notice, you know, how um, enlivened you are, you know, mm. when you're just reaching out and getting to know people. But it's an important skill for anyone to have. I think the other um, thing I love to do, and I've loved to do this ever since I was a kid, I, I love to do public speaking. Uh-huh. Just love it. Yeah. Put me up in front of a group of people. I have a blast. <laughs> <laughs> so you would not be, you know, it's really interesting when they study stress yeah. and anxiety and the physiology, one of the things that they can do, there are a couple things, shark, you know, shark, they, they use these uh, goggles with uh, people in shark tanks. So sharks yeah. and public speaking. I know, I know. So, and so you, in a sense, would be an anomaly. In that I would because be. most, it's really almost not universal but very widespread that people get anxious with public yeah. speaking. Yeah, no, I love yeah. it. I just you've always loved it. I have, yeah. uh -huh. and you've used public speaking as part of networking. And oh, absolutely. Yeah, public speaking, one-on-one -on -one relationship building, public speaking, mm -hmm. networking, and social media. Mm. And tell me about the social media. Well, it's, it's uh, actually relatively straightforward. It's having a good website. It's uh, having, um, uh, being active on LinkedIn. It's remaining in touch with people through email, getting, sending them information that they might have, that would be of interest to them. 
And I think in terms of a website, that an effective website is one that is fairly uh, short and crisp and professional, not a lot of uh, ancillary and ciliary information about you as a person, but more you as a professional, that that seems to work well, at least for lawyers. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And, and uh, one that's that's got uh, good search engine optimization. Uh-huh. Yeah. Great. Um, so um, what so then what happened with that experience in Sydney with the consultancy? Well, um, I, I did that for three years and then uh -huh. and that was fine. But it became clear to my husband and I after about three years that that Australia was not the place we wanted to be. And he was offered a job in Auckland, which is in New Zealand, which is the place we had wanted to be at the outset. Mm -hmm. So I had, although I had enjoyed that consultancy work with that firm, I was looking forward to being freelance and, and not being subject to the constraints of a larger organization about what I did and how I did it. Right. So right. when and we got to Auckland, I had a very fortunate break. I happened before, to... before we go on, I wanted oh, sure. to be back with in Sydney for a bit because we're going to talk about New Zealand and yeah. you, know, you know and what it's like. I think it, I really love hearing you talk about that. Um, but what was it like in Sydney, and what was your personal social life there like? Uh huh. In terms of you know your sort of natural community building. Yeah. That's just the way you move in the world. What what happened in Sydney with that? Well, that that organization, in, in some ways, um, strangely enough, became the basis, that Sydney Women's International Club, even though I was a bit of a fish out of water with it. Uh -huh. I did meet some interesting women, and I think there's a process of, of culling in an organization like that where you, over time, identify the, the like-minded people, uh -huh. and, and you uh, contact them individually, and you do things one-on-one, -on -one and you have them over for dinner and that kind of thing. And I've always found that one of the best ways to build relationships in a new community is have people over for dinner. Kind of goes mm -hmm. back to that Christian notion of sharing bread together. Mm -hmm. uh, and I always do that. You know, I've, I've always enjoyed that. Um, and, um, uh, and some of those professional relationships morphed into friendships as well. In that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, but the but the primary decision had to do with um, also with Paul's career, with your husband's career, and just uh, seeing. And then also there were, wasn't there sort of a more of a problem getting a visa. Oh yes. Well, we we were interested in getting permanent residency and ultimately citizenship, right. uh -huh. and uh, the New Zealand. Forensic Pathology Licensing Board was making it difficult for my husband. And he got sort of sick of, he could have done it ultimately, but he got sick of the process. Right. Yeah. It's a tough thing when you've been the chief medical examiner of, yeah, the, of, just... the, of the state, you know, to have to kind of jump through those hoops. Exactly. Um, so it's time for us to take a break and we're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Mercy Russell with the Remarkable Relationship Show. And my guest today is Emily Morrow, who is a, a, let's say, retired attorney and executive coach and consultant, and um, we'll, be coming, we'll be talking about her personal transformation and reinvention when we come back. 
Alternative Talk 1150 is your sports organization's safe bet when it comes to airing your team's games. Our players are all seasoned professionals when it comes to sports programming. Imagine your games being heard on local radio. Your team deserves the MVP treatment. Call 425-653-1150 today to learn how affordable and fun it is to broadcast your games on the radio. Call 425-653-1150 and make your next season something special. That's 425-653-1150. Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150. Uh, Hello, Mercy Russell is here with the Remarkable Relationship Show. I'm here today with my guest, Emily Morrow, and we're talking about her reinvention of self. We've just been talking about her um, first career and life in um, Vermont, Shelburne, Vermont, and Burlington, Vermont, and her move to Sydney, Australia. And now, Emily, I want to talk about your move to New Zealand, where you currently. Oh, okay. So, you um, you had you and your husband had decided that Sydney was really not a place where you could stay. Yeah. Um, well, it was just it it was culturally too different to Vermont. Australia and New Zealand could not be more different to each other, and living in Sydney was a, was a lot of fun. It's a, it's a lovely, fun city, but it's more like living in Houston, Texas. Mm. And, it, and, and Australia is a dry, harsh climate. And we came from a lush, green place being Vermont. Mm. And ultimately, the, just the uh, environmental and cultural differences were were just too stark for us. Well, can you just spell out a little bit more, like what about Houston? Um, what about Sydney? Place. Well, it's well, Sydney, you know, yeah, yeah. It's a very big city. It's very brash. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's quite intense. Um, and I would say, and you know, I liked Australia, but I would say that the climate and, to some extent, the people uh, mm-hmm. are harsh. Uh-huh. Whereas I would say in New Zealand, the the, the climate. And the people are pretty benign. We used, to, we used to joke about Australia and say the reality of Australia is that what you don't know in Australia is likely to kill you. I mean, they have just the number of, of, of poisonous plants and creatures and fish and jellyfish. And, you know, whereas in New Zealand, there's nothing poisonous. <laughs> oh, how interesting. Isn't yeah. that interesting? Yeah, yeah. such a different yeah. ecosystem. Oh. Completely right. different, completely right. different. Most right. people don't right. appreciate that. Right. Um, and, and there is that air that, I mean, I, this is just very superficial on my part because I don't know much about Australia, but just the air that is that <clears throat> as w- the Westerners who, who came and settled yeah. there yeah. were, weren't they, they were convicts. Yeah, right? it was transports. So, yeah. yeah, it was very yeah, dark, were, very, very dark history. Right. And in New Zealand, the people who settled here came here for a better life. So, and it was settled during a different time in the British Empire. Right. And uh-huh. Australia has one of the darkest histories of any country that I know, including um, how it was settled, its treatment of its Aboriginal people. Mm-hmm. And in New Zealand, um, basically our our, our indigenous people are, are, are alive and well, and the culture is strong, and it's a, it's a very, very different situation. Yeah, they, yeah. they have a dynamic citizenry. Um, this, this whole um, 
One of my favorite books about American patterns of immigration is called mm-hmm. Albion Seed. And I, there are other people who've written about this, but mm-hmm. how the culture in different parts of our country, um, which actually can sort of mirror some of those differences, mm-hmm. are linked to who, where, where the immigrants were coming from. Mm. So this makes total sense to me. And I mm. certainly would love to hear more about New Zealand in that respect. But right now, <clears throat> I just want to, I want to talk about your move to New Zealand. Um, now, did this primarily have to do with Paul? I know you, hadn't you had your eye on New Zealand originally? Oh, yes, we had. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That yeah. was the country mm-hmm. we had wanted to move to. But at the time we were ready to make the move, there wasn't a job available in New Zealand. And then a job became available and Paul applied for that and was hired. So that gave us the possibility. Uh And it was through his um, skills that we were ultimately able to get permanent residency and then citizenship in New Zealand, which we've done. Because he then went to work for the city of Auckland. Well, for the, actually, uh, yeah, for the local hospital. Yeah. For the local hospital as a forensic pathologist. And he Mm -hmm. switched he's done some different things since he's been there right so he's, well he's I mean, always been a forensic pathologist right but uh, he keeps he keeps retiring and then getting <laughs> rehired they won't they won't let him retire because his skills are in such uh, demand all right uh-huh. yeah for sure and and he did get a master's in public health right he uh, did yes yes, yes just a couple of years ago Mm-hmm. He went back and get a, got a master's in public health and not, not to be bested. I'm in the process of going back and getting a, a master's in counseling <laughs> at the University of Auckland. I mean, I've got to keep up with the Joneses here. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Can't let your husband have more yeah, degrees. Yeah, than yeah. You I'm, do. A, I'm, a, I'm a strong believer and, you know, got to <laughs> keep, um, keep growing and developing. Yeah. So. Well, that's a nice joke, but I yeah. know that's not yeah. the motivation. So um, you arrived in New Zealand and you were originally in a high rise in Auckland. We, we were, and I, I just hated that. So fairly mm-hmm. quickly, we got ourselves out of there and moved to um, uh, a suburb of Auckland called Devonport, which is a lovely uh-huh. little suburb across the harbor. And so uh, once again, I, I was fortunate. I'd gotten some introductions to people in Auckland from people that I knew in Sydney. There's quite a bit of Mm-hmm. cross-pollination. And fairly soon along, I got to know a professional colleague who gave me an introduction to one of the larger law firms in the country to, to start doing one-on-one coaching work for their people. So that, it, it was actually, it turned out to be relatively easy to develop a, an individual consultancy practice. Mm-hmm. So all that's worked well. Um, but I would say, or and I would say that the networking skills that I used in in Sydney and also in in Vermont were very helpful here. I mean, it's just it's it's mm-hmm. kind of like you. I'm like a duck in water. You put me in the water, um, and I'll just start swimming around and meeting the other ducks. Mm-hmm. What I find is extremely helpful in that regard is just to ask people about themselves and listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people are okay. interested in telling the, you their stories. They, as a friend of mine who used to do, um, she did image consulting for people, and she once made the comment. She said, "The most charming person is the best listener." Uh huh. Yes. Yeah. Well, this is um, 
uh, you know, it's I think now um, talked about widely as a as a, in dating and I mean all kinds mm -hmm. of things that I read is the important thing is to be the listener. Yeah. And yet at the same time, it's a it's a skill to be practiced, right? And uh -huh. so uh, not everybody is just a natural at that. Um, and um, so what, so you moved to Devonport, right? Uh -huh. And you bought a home there. Uh -huh. And then how did your, um, what other type of community activities were you involved with in the beginning? I yeah. know they've expanded since then, but. Mm. Well, I joined uh, the local Rotary Club mm -hmm. and uh, I was interested, I have been on and off various nonprofit boards in New Zealand. And uh, we actually then we joined one of the local churches. And I would say of the different modalities that we use to, to build mm -hmm. community, I would say joining the church which is a very community-based church, has probably been the most uh, the most rich and fulfilling of those. So interesting. Yeah. And it's a church of a different faith than the one that you were raised in. Yes, it's an Anglican yeah. church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it it's very much community-based so that essentially everybody in the church mm -hmm. lives within five minutes of the church. So everywhere you go in the community, Devonport's a fairly small community. Everywhere mm -hmm. you go, you run into people from the church. From the church. Yeah, uh -huh. which is lovely. Yeah. It's lovely. So it's, uh-huh. Um, and then, and, and I, what, I what, tend what, in, to, oh, since yeah. I, I would say, I don't know if this is fair to say, but uh -huh. you correct me otherwise, but initially at any rate i wouldn't have called you a religious person this is true so can you talk more about what yes you met people and you build community but there was more to that community that had significance and meaning for you can you yes. talk a little bit more about that yeah well i at the time we were going through some difficult things in our family in particular and I had reached kind of a dead end in terms of my ability to deal with some of those things, let's say. Mm -hmm. And I just was drawn on some level to, to go to the church. I went on a, I went for a midnight mass one Christmas Eve and really, really liked what was going on at that church. It's a, it's a traditional Anglican church. I mean, it's not anything kind of out of the right. ordinary. And just uh, just for our yeah. for Americans now, my my grandmother actually was from an Anglican tradition, and she went uh -huh. she went to the Episcopalian Church. Of course, so that'd be the U.S. That version. Would, yeah, that would be the U.S. version. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you One liked of the things, what? Mm -hmm. Oh, go ahead. No, you but you liked what you experienced when you absolutely. First went I like the leadership. Our vicar is great, wonderful woman. And uh, I, I tend, whenever I get involved with an organization, this is just me, I tend to get involved in a leadership capacity. So I was invited to go on to Vestry, and now I am what's known as the Vicar's Warden. Mm -hmm. so, Can you explain what those are? Well, Vestry is the governing body of the church. Uh -huh. And the Vicar's Warden is essentially the person who uh, is the the confidant and um, 
Well, the person with whom the vicar can talk candidly about difficult things that are going on in the, in the, in the parish in a confidential way, kind of the support person for the vicar. Uh-huh. Yeah, which has been great. It's been a wonderful right. experience. Well, yeah. And yeah. Who, who better suited, right? I mean, from my point of view. Yeah. <laughs> and you have that nice, you also um, started going on retreats with the church. So you were, yes. yeah, you were developing yeah. sort of more in-depth relationships with yeah. other. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's a good point. I think if you're going, my, my, my philosophy tends to be, if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. I mean, don't do something unless you're going to do a good job with it. Mm-hmm. And if you can't, if it doesn't feel like you can commit yourself to, to that and doing a good job with it, then don't bother. Step, step away from it. Yeah, so you dove in. Yes. You really took yes. what was offered and you took advantage mm-hmm. and developed, you also developed relationships with other families. Yes. In, yes. Yeah. In the community, yep. in the church. Yes. And, and then again, this is so interesting. Um, both of us coming from the uh, Vermont, which is, you know, really a, a, a state of small communities. You know, yeah. even we lived in Burlington, Vermont, Shelburne, which is probably the largest, most populous, you know, city. And yet it's still a small community in the yeah. end. Yeah, you know, where you walk down the street, you're always going to see someone. See you people. Know. Well, I remember yeah. a a Kiwi friend of mine, a lawyer actually, said to me as she's a, a lawyer in Auckland, and she said to me as I was building this consultancy practice, she said, "You have to understand about New Zealand that New Zealand is like a small village, and Auckland is a uh, a neighborhood in that village, and all the lawyers are an extended family." in that village that that's how things operate here and it really is true i I mean new zealand is a country of five million people and there are no secrets in new zealand (laughs) (laughs) and and like vermont it's Uh a it's a place where if you want to meet somebody for whatever reason they're only at, at the most they're two degrees of separation you can get right. access to that person very easily. And it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a very, I would say, it's a very high-functioning, uh, well-integrated community. With um, uh, a high, Like Vermont, it's got a high level of social capital. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a pretty wonderful place. <laughs> what do you mean by that, a high level of social capital? Well, social capital is that kind of amorphous and yet ubiquitous uh, element, if you will, that creates the stickiness and sense of cohesion within a community. And it manifests itself in many uh, both obvious and less obvious ways. So for example, in uh, a state like Vermont, which has high levels of social capital, and I'm, I'm referencing here the, the work of uh, Robert, uh, I think it's Robert Putnam, who wrote the book, yeah, who wrote the book Bowling Alone, that there are a lot of indicia of social high levels of social capital, everything from higher rates of graduation from, from high school to lower teen pregnancy rates to less poverty and better health outcomes and all of that stuff. Right. And, and the, dis- the distinction by it as social capital is that it has to do with the uh, um, 
not so much your financial status mm. or your material mm. status. It has to do with your, your, your connections to other people. Yes, and that's, your, your, that's your social and, capital. And, that's your, your... Statu- and your stature, in a sense, yes. In, yes. Your, in your community and in your network. Mm-hmm. And it, your stature could have to do with, you know, um, you know, the way you organize church suppers. Right. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. have to do with necessarily uh, um, a prestigious uh, right. role in the community. It really has. To I, I mean, it could have to do that. But the thing is, when you move to an entirely new com- country and a new community, right. you have no history. Right. Nobody knows whether you're a, an honest person or a dishonest person, a trustworthy one or a, or, or a, a, a toxic one. And so you have to rebuild that identity from scratch through cumulative and iterative interactions with other people in which you rise to the occasion and meet if if not exceed their their expectations right so in some ways one of the things that i have found so very interesting about living overseas well it's twofold one is that I think it requires you on it, or for me, it requires me to be the best person I can day to day, because I'm always going to, every time I open my mouth, I announce mm-hmm. that I'm from away, just because right. of my accent. Because of your accent, that's true. So I, there's, I, when I meet somebody new, they may be bringing some expectations to that interaction, and I need to be, I need to manage myself in a way that my best self is the one that comes forward and, and, and yet the authentic self. Mm-hmm. And secondly, the other part I love about it is that every day something is new and different. That every day I'll bump up against some cultural difference mm-hmm. that I perhaps didn't even realize was there. Right. I remember the, um, the year I lived uh, that, I lived in France for a year, but then I went back like eight years later and I was there for about four months by myself. And I remember, um, you know, feeling really quite isolated. <laughs> I just, I was there working on a dissertation. So I was, wasn't out and about all day, but I often had to go out. And of course I had the other language, which was still sure. somewhat of a challenge, although I was confident. Um, but I would tell myself at the beginning of every day, something interesting is going to happen today at the mm-hmm. end of the day you're going to be you you're going to you're going to be able to look back and see something that surprised you and it was always mm-hmm. positive mm-hmm. there was always something curious or positive or an you know interesting interaction with somebody but i could count on it so it became my mantra in the beginning of the day um, and it was really sort of the antidote to feeling kind of isolated and um, I would feel afraid of walking out the door. I'd have yeah. to say, mercy, I say, mercy, come on, this is okay. <laughs> Everything's going to be you fine. Can do this. Yeah, it's going to be interesting, you know, but I had to talk myself into it. It was a, you know, I, so I think that experience is really fascinating. Um, we're at the point of taking another break because and then I want to come back and really I want you to tell us more about New Zealand you've told me a lot and I want to try to explore more Mm. of that for our listeners so that they really get a much more 
you know, nuanced view of the culture, of the way that it works, of how things, you know, what your experience has been like, especially since you've been there and we've been through COVID there. And then also your personal transformation, right? You're, uh -huh. you're a different person now. Now, you're not particularly different to me, but I know you've had a lot of experiences that are, you know, have really changed the way you see the world. And I'd like to talk more about that. So this is Mercy Russell with the Remarkable Relationship Show. My guest, Emily Morrow, and we'll be back after the break. Have something important to say? Want to help improve our world? Need to promote your business uniquely and effectively? KKNW is the answer. Our staff helps broadcasters and podcasters create professional-sounding audio. Bring your talent and let our experts help you craft a radio show or podcast that best delivers your message. Learn more at 1150kknw.com. That's 1150kknw.com. KKNW, talk variety that's live and local. Multicultural, multidimensional even. Alternative Talk 1150. Hello, this is Mercy Russell with a Remarkable Relationship Show. I'm here today with my guest, Emily Morrow, and we're talking about reinvention of self. Uh, Emily and I met in Vermont. Uh, she then moved to um, Sydney, Australia, and then she now lives in New Zealand with her second home in Vermont still, and we're talking about her life in New Zealand. So Emily, um, we were just talking about um, basically how you connected to the small community, the Devonport, which is part, you know, I guess part of the city of Auckland it is, or yeah, contiguous yeah. to a, it's a suburb. Yeah, it's a small community and a church that you've been very involved with there um, um, on many levels. Um, <laughs> yeah, always a leader, uh, a soul sister, <laughs> you know, sort of. Yeah, that's really, you've really kind of, mm. you know, embraced that. And, um, but I want, you have, you and I have spoken regularly throughout this journey, and I have really been fascinated with your view of um, New Zealand, you mm. know, as a country, as a culture. And certainly we talk about it in contrast to some of our feelings and experiences uh, in the United States. Um, so I just like you to talk a little bit more about that. Um, <clears throat> and let's see, where should we start? Um, I guess one place I'd like to start is, mm -hmm. um, just the, what we referred to in our conversation about Sydney and the relationship between the Western immigrants and settlers onto the island with the uh, native or aboriginal people mm, mm. um and it which has been a kind of a harsh history mm, in australia mm. and dark one united, very very dark dark and dark in, and dark in the united states as well mm, mm. um tell us a, a more about what it has been like in new zealand and how that mm. is active in the culture today yeah well it's not like it's a bright and happy history in new zealand mm -hmm. On the other hand, when the Brits, when the Crown arrived and started actively uh, colonizing New Zealand in the 1830s and 1840s, it was considerably later than when they were doing that in, um, in Sydney. And Maori are, Maori being our indigenous people, are they they are big strong people they're polynesians mm. they're they're physically very robust 
and their warriors. And what happened in New Zealand is that there were, there were years of, of conflict between the Crown and, and Maori and uh, across the country. And in 1840, essentially Maori fought the Brits to a truce, to a standstill, which resulted in what's called the Treaty of Waitangi. And the Treaty of Waitangi uh, was a written document that attempted to codify the relationship between the crown and between Maori. And that document continues to be the seminal legal document mm. to this day that is referred to whenever there are issues around the relative rights and responsibilities of the crown and now the government in New Zealand and, and Maori. And Maori are, are strong people and they're bright people and they're, and they're they, they learned the ways of the Europeans. They learned how to use European weapons. They're highly effective people. Now, mm -hmm. it's been a difficult history, and there were periods of time in New Zealand where Maori were almost exterminated, as in, in other colonization mm -hmm. stories. The, the focus now in New Zealand, however, at the present time, and I, I find this very, very exciting, is about creating a bicultural country in New Zealand and a mm -hmm. bilingual country. So oh. the, the uh, Maori, Maori language is mm -hmm. Te and there's been a very big push to teach Te Reo in school. And in fact, there's such a demand, not just around, among Maori, but also among Pakia. Pakia are the, the, the Europeans to learn Te Reo, that there's a shortage of Te Reo teachers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's been a real effort to integrate what's known as Tikanga Maori. Tikanga Maori is Maori custom into the way things happen in New Zealand. And Māori are a strong political force in New Zealand as well. So that, for example, in the, the, in the election in which Jacinda Ardern and her government came into power, it was primarily because of, of a Māori um, smaller party that, that, mm -hmm. that, that threw the, the, the power to, to Jacinda. So Māori are a, a very important force in this country. So that's one factor. I think another factor that differentiates New Zealand, say, from the U.S., and I think also from Australia, and there's a book that's been written about this. There's a wonderful book. I forget the name of the author called Freedom versus Freedom and Fairness. And mm. the, the, the thesis of this book is that the core value in the United States, for a whole lot of reasons, is, is around personal freedom. The, the mm -hmm. development of the West, and, right. you know, don't tread on my freedoms. The core value in New Zealand is fairness. And it's the value around if everybody can't have it, then nobody should have it. And that core value drives a lot of things. It's behind our national healthcare system. It's behind uh, New Zealand. One of the fascinating aspects of New Zealand that's not well known is that we have no personal injury litigation in New Zealand, no personal injury litigation. So if you're injured in a malpractice situation or you're injured in a car accident, nothing, there's no fault. What happens is that your remedy is through a government-sponsored program called ACC, that provides you with whatever resources, whether they be medical or supportive or whatever, to get you back into health. So the implications of this are that, that doctors don't have to worry about malpractice. 
mm-hmm. litigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're, they, it's, it's kind of interesting because there are lots of lawyers in New Zealand and they they earn a good living without being involved in malpractice <laughs> litigation. Yes, yeah, uh-huh. or, or personal uh-huh. injury litigation. Interesting. So there are lots of implications of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, another just kind of quick and dirty one-liner that I'll say to people, people will often from the U.S. will say, well, how is, how is New Zealand and how are New Zealand and the U.S. different? And I'll say to them, well, you know, in the U.S., consumer goods are inexpensive, easy to get, of great variety, and high quality, but the public and municipal infrastructure is falling apart. Whereas mm-hmm. in New Zealand, consumer goods are expensive, hard to get, uh, often of low quality and a poor variety, but our public and municipal infrastructure, it's not perfect, but it's in pretty good shape because that's where the investment goes. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very different culturally. And I've certainly known Americans who have come to live in New Zealand for whom it wasn't the right fit because they missed that very strong consumer culture right. that they were used to in the U.S. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. 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 And it's, yeah. And, the, um, <clears throat> and so what was your experience then? Now, Jacinda, you've talked to me quite a bit about Jacinda, so uh-huh. I'm familiar with who she is. Uh, when did she come into office? And uh-huh. she was a very distinctive leader through the COVID Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit more about her? And, and yeah, she, well, she, she and, her and her, yeah, she and her Labor Party came into power about five years ago and have had a series. She has managed a series of really potentially destabilizing crises in that five year period. COVID, the, the massacre in Christchurch, uh, mm-hmm. a volcanic eruption that killed a lot of people here in New Zealand. And During COVID, it became very clear that New Zealand had one chance to do COVID right the first time because our medical resources were fairly Mm. modest compared to many other countries. I mean, in the whole country of New Zealand, there were maybe 200 ventilators at the time COVID broke out. And when you're located at the end of the world, like we are, hours from anywhere else. You can't just order more ventilators when you run out. So Jacinda very quickly, and I think to her great credit, decided to play the only card New Zealand had, which was uh, isolation and lockdown. So literally after we'd gotten only a few COVID cases, but it was, COVID got here later. So we had the advantage of seeing what happened in the rest of the world. But very, very quickly, Jacinda put us into a a very intense lockdown and basically pretty much stopped international travel and created a system of what were called um, managed isolation and quarantine facilities so that anybody coming from overseas had to go into a government-run quarantine facility for two weeks. And so the effect was in the first wave of COVID that COVID was eliminated in the country. And during the time when COVID was spreading really everywhere else in the world for that year, we lived a pretty normal, albeit insulated life of being COVID free. It was almost, it was almost surreal sometimes. Um, I do want to move on because I have another important question for you, but I just want to remind, I just want to just mention this vignette you told me about you. uh, What we haven't talked about is, you know, that you are a lifelong open water swimmer. (laughs) (laughs) 
she swims like I mean, you know, as long as there isn't ice on the water, she's in yeah. like Champlain, uh, suited up, or in the, and then in the pool, mm. and then you also are, you swim in the ocean where you I do I do nearby during the when it's seasonable. And you had I had a story about you know you weren't even supposed to go swimming during COVID. You're right, right? Yeah, and, yeah. But one day you did. Oh, this was a great this was a great anecdote. Yeah, so um, they basically during the lockdown to uh, avoid having uh, um, medical problems because of somebody drowning or whatever, their, their swimming was, was off limits. But I was, a friend and I were very, we, we decided we were going to swim anyway. So we went out at seven o'clock in the morning to a, what we thought was a fairly isolated beach where nobody would see us. And we started doing our laps. Well, there was one house at the end of this beach. And after the couple days of doing this this elderly man he must have been well into his 80s hobbled out of the house on a cane came to the beach where we were and yelled at us you're letting Jacinda and the team of five million down now get out of the water get out of the water and he shamed us he didn't threaten to call the police or anything like that he said you are letting Jacinda and the yeah. team of five million down. And I thought that was right. brilliant. I wanted to go and shake his hand. <laughs> <laughs> Probably he didn't want you close, but yeah, yeah, I love yeah. that story. I mean, yeah. it's so yeah. unique, really. And yeah. and in terms of, um, I think that there are pockets in the United States that were operating like that, but it yes. didn't mark our country, yeah. that spirit, right? Yeah. Emily, I want to see if we can dive a little deeper into talking about your personal transformation. We've been talking mm -hmm. about how you do things, how you've done them differently, what kinds of activities have influenced you, but how would you begin to talk about how you're different today than uh, you were, you know, what it's over 15 years ago, right? Yeah. 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 That's a, again a great question. I I would say that when I was a lawyer, I was just very focused on accomplishing things. And since we've moved over here, I would say I'm a lot more focused on just being. And there've been a couple of health-related experiences during the course of the last 15 years that have impacted that, I would say. One is that I was diagnosed with cancer. And that's a pretty humbling thing to go from what, what you feel is brilliant health into being in a situation where you're really debilitated by the, not so much the disease, but by the treatment. And right. then uh, several years ago, it, I turned out that I needed some uh, a repair of my mitral valve. So I had open heart surgery. Again, I went from being this very robust, capable person to being, um, you know, very, very dependent. So I would say this has probably made, th this plus, I, I guess, involvement in the church has certainly made me more introspective and uh, perhaps a little bit more of an observer and a little less of a doer. Um, how has your faith changed? <clears throat> uh, you know, how shall I put this? We were Quakers initially, and I think the, the basic tenet of Quakerism is that there is that of God in every person. And I would say that that 
precept, that religious, if you will, faith-based precept has not changed for me. And it has implications about how you interact with other people and how you, how you manage yourself in life. Uh, the Christianity, see, I, I view Christianity and the Anglican Church and the doctrines of the Anglican Church in a metaphorical way. I don't, I don't view them right. in a literal way. Mm -hmm. And yeah. the, 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 the basic tenets of, of, of Christianity viewed through that metaphorical lens make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, yeah, I was raised. Mm. My mother particularly was very clear that the Bible was, that the lessons were a metaphor, right? Yeah. And that there yeah. was deeper meaning in the stories that they weren't literal. Mm. So that's, yeah, I, that's really I say I say, you know, Christianity is not for people who are metaphorically challenged. <laughs> yeah. yeah I don't know. If, yeah. Yeah, if it's not, I don't know. Anyway, we could go into that about yeah, what yeah. Be, I, it's pretty challenging if you take it literally. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so um uh I just want to say, you know, you talked about, you know, um that, you know, doing versus being, you know, when you and I met was during mm. that period. I mean, we met beforehand, but we really got to know each other. Uh, I was hobbling around with a, with a uh, debilitated hip and you were, I was going you know, through cancer you treatment. Were going through cancer treatment <laughs> and it was in the winter and oh. I'd come and we'd sit and talk and we really got to know each other. And that was a period of being, it was really a period of being. Oh, it was. So I've always known you as someone, I sometimes describe you in a, in a comparable way to people as somebody who's, you know, a girlfriend, just in the moment, enjoying, having fun. And then you just have to watch out because all, you know, the next thing you know, you know, she's, you know, she's got her, uh, <laughs> I've got, got my her, agenda. Like, you got your agenda, you got your lawyer face on, you're yeah. like, whoa, whoa yeah. wait a minute, who is this person? And I love it because it's so almost seamless, at least for me and having yeah. known you for so yeah. long. So I, even as you are being more and more, you are still doing a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, it's all, it's almost seamless, you know, because the being becomes more part of the doing. And yeah. Um, and I think that's really the goal, true. It's not yeah. just, you know, yeah. eating bonbons, right? Emily, our time is up, and I thank you so much for joining me today. This is always a pleasure to talk to you, and it's been very generous of you to give your time to me. This is Mercy Russell with the Remarkable Relationship Show. Uh, my guest, our guest today on the show is Emily Morrow um, from New Zealand and Burlington, Vermont, and this has been her story of her of reinvention of self and community building. Thank you for joining us today. My Thank pleasure, you. Mercy. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.